Hello, everyone. Welcome to the seventh episode of the RASC 150 History Podcast, in which we employ the tools of communication to communicate something of the nature and spirit of a former age, when, if you desired to possess that iconic attribute of the astronomer, a telescope, you would likely have had to make your own. My name is Heather Laird. I am a director of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada, and my co-host is the RASC archivist, Randall Rosenfeld. Say hello, Randall. Hello. We are surrounded by tools and technology, so much so that we're at times seemingly unaware of their enabling or hindering presence in our lives. However you choose to communicate, you are using a technology and the techniques which go along with it. Talking with a physically present non-texting friend at a cafe about the awesomeness of some random podcast on the history of the RASC is a technological act, as much as using a social media platform to do the same. And we have been immersed in a technological world for eons. Thanks to Chelsea, our engineer, we're using some very recent software and hardware to produce this podcast. But if we'd used two empty tin cans connected by string and recorded it analog with a pine needle onto a carrot, as Randall originally suggested, we'd still be using a technology. We make stuff to do stuff. In 1949, the British Museum published Kenneth Oakley's Man the Toolmaker, which became something of a bestseller. In 2018, we'd prefer a different generic noun for humans. But Oakley's title concisely states what has been seen as a fundamental characteristic of being us. Citing Oakley, but updating his language slightly for present sensibilities, he remarked that, quote, humans are social animals distinguished by culture, by the ability to make tools and communicate ideas. Employment of tools appears to be their chief biological characteristic, for, considered functionally, tools are detachable extensions of the forearm. Systematic making of tools implies a marked capacity for conceptual thought." End quote. Well, we now know that other animals can make tools, and some scientists speak of other animals having cultures, but the strong self-identification of ourselves as the animal which makes tools, or uses tools, is still pretty basic to how most of us see ourselves reflected in our smartphone screens. Going back in time and closer to our theme, Joseph Moxon, hydrographer to Charles II, and a maker and retailer of celestial globes, charts, and tools used by astronomers and other mathematical practitioners, stated in his Mechanic Exercises, or the Doctrine of Handiworks, quote, that astronomy is an excellent science all that know will confess how could astronomy be known to any perception but by instruments made by hand. That is, what would we know of astronomy if we had no astronomical instruments? Or, in Oakley's terms, quote, astronomers are social animals distinguished by culture, by the ability to make and use astronomical tools and communicate astronomical ideas. Employment of astronomical tools appears to be the chief biological characteristic of astronomers. For considered functionally astronomical apparatus are detachable extensions of the astronomer. Hmm. That seems overly reductive, although for some RASC members, one never knows. As Heather said in the opening, there was a time when many, in fact probably most amateur astronomers, had to make some or all of their own instruments. The opposite is the case now, and has been since the mid-1980s or early 1990s. It is simply a matter of price. 
for a variety of economic reasons, chiefly the reduction of costs to the sourcing of skilled labor offshore, amateur astronomers in North America and Europe are effectively paying less for astronomical equipment than they have at any prior time. For eight-tenths of the century and a half of the life of the RASC, its members did not enjoy ready and inexpensive access to commercially produced telescopes. And that holds for astronomers, amateur or professional, everywhere, from the time of the invention of the astronomical telescope. For nearly all of them, a commercial astronomical telescope was a luxury item. How much of a luxury item? Around 1900, the firm of Alvin Clark and Sons out of Cambridgeport, Massachusetts, was offering an astronomical refractor with a 100 millimeter achromatic objective lens and basic accessories on an equatorial mount for around 330 US dollars, which works out to roughly the same in Canadian dollars of the time. Thomas Cook and Sons, based in York, England, charged about 90 pounds for a similarly appointed instrument, which works out to about 440 Canadian dollars. The sticker shock for us occurs when we look at wages in Canada then. The average blue collar worker earned 375 Canadian dollars per year, and the average white collar earned 870 Canadian dollars per year. Oh, and those are the wages for men. Women made half that or less. So if the average Canadian blue-collar worker was lucky enough to purchase a new instrument by Alvin Clark & Sons, it would cost him nearly his entire wages for a year. A woman would have to devote two years' worth of her wages to the purchase, or more. A comparable instrument by Cook & Sons would eat into the following year's wages for the blue-collar worker. The white-collar worker would have to devote something like 40% to 50% of his year's wages towards the telescope purchase. Given that one can't live on starlight alone, whether you were the average production worker or a supervisor of production workers, an astronomical telescope represented an unimaginable cost outlay for most Canadians 120 years ago. As a proportion of income, in modern terms, the 100mm achromatic objective equatorially mounted refractor would cost more than $25,000 in current Canadian dollars, but they don't cost that now. At present, you can purchase an approximately equivalent new instrument for a thousand Canadian dollars. The cost for the refractor is an order of magnitude less in 2018 than it was in 1900. Is it little wonder that society members took to making their own equipment? Listeners will recall from earlier episodes that the founders of the society in 1868 were drawn equally from the working and the modest middle classes. Few of these men could casually devote 40 to 100% of their salaries to the purchase of a telescope. From the very start, or multiple starts of the RASC, members either contemplated making their own instruments or moved from contemplation to action. Mungo Turnbull was one of the original eight who did so. About his telescope-making activity, one anonymous writer in the Ontario Journal of Education wrote in 1870, quote, A few years ago, astronomical telescopes were rarely to be seen among us. Now both refractors and reflectors are in constant use. Two of the reflector class, we are glad to state, have been made in Toronto by Mr. Mungo Turnbull during his spare hours after his daily toil as a cabinet maker. One of them is a metallic speculum, of the Herschelian kind, and of seven inches aperture. The other is a Newtonian reflector of nearly 12 inches aperture with silvered glass specula. This latter instrument was shown at our late provincial exhibition, 
but could not be tested or judged under the circumstances. Such tests, however, have since been applied as proves that it is an exceedingly powerful instrument. Practical observers know that there are certain objects which afford good tests of the optical qualities of an instrument, such as the small blue attendant to Vega, the De Bellissima of Sir John Herschel in the constellation Lyra, the components of Gamma Andromedae, the four stars forming the trapezium in the nebula of Orion, the moon, Jupiter, etc. A few gentlemen familiar with these objects last week tested Mr. Turnbull's reflector, and the results were of the most satisfactory character. The different colors in the belt on Jupiter were seen distinctly, as were also the four stars of the trapezium and the others we have mentioned. The construction of such an instrument reflects the very highest credit upon Mr. Turnbull's ingenuity and perseverance. It contains all the latest improvements, and from the particular way in which they are silvered, its mirrors are found to give about one-third more light than the old kind. We have no doubt that Mr. Turnbull would be very happy to see any who take a lively interest in his favorite science, and would be happy to allow experts to test his instrument in any reasonable manner." Close quote. When Turnbull was making his instruments, there were few written instructions for those willing to acquire the skills to make telescopes, and there would have been likely no one in Toronto he could have turned to for instruction. Like William Herschel, he would have been largely thrown on his own devices, so to speak. One interesting aspect of Turnbull's work is that he was on the cusp of the technological change from making reflecting telescope mirrors out of speculum metal to making them out of glass, and glass is very much easier to work. Turnbull's reflectors would have been among the first made in Canada. Unfortunately, none of them seem to have survived to the present day. Another one of the original eight who formed the society in 1868 was a professional optician, Charles Potter, who had been trained in London. Unlike Turnbull, whose later attempts to become a professional maker of scientific equipment can only be described as pathetic, Potter's professional career in his chosen discipline was prosperous. He became, in fact, one of the purveyors of professionally made astronomical apparatus that few amateurs could afford. Potter was unusual among the society membership in that he was probably the only one to have received professional craft training in scientific instrument production in the 1650s and 80s. There is little evidence to indicate that he passed any of that on to his fellow society members, but why would he have done so? It might have lessened his business and given a rival a step up. In the provision of resources for amateur telescope makers, matters didn't improve much till the early 20th century. The outstanding figures of what came to be known as the Amateur Telescope Making Movement, or ATM, were Albert Engels, a writer for Scientific American, and Russell W. Porter, a remarkable technical draftsman and designer of machines, who would eventually join George Ellery Hale's staff in Pasadena designing the Giant of Mount Polymer. Porter was inspired by Leo Holcomb, who in turn took inspiration from Albert Hassard, a Toronto lawyer, amateur telescope maker, RASC member, and friend of C.A. Chant. As you'll recall, Chant was featured in one of our earlier podcasts. Hassard can be considered one of the godfathers of the ATM movement. He wrote of some of his experiences in a retrospective published in the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada in 1917. Quote, Ever since I can remember, I have taken an interest in the stars. About the year 1903, I bought a two-inch object glass, and the mechanical genius of the general secretary of our society, J.R. Collins, 
constructed it into a telescope. About the year 1907, I commenced work on a nine and a half inch reflecting telescope. I had previously no acquaintance with this kind of work and gained my information through different articles scattered over numerous publications. Ultimately, however, after many trials and adversities, the instrument was completed. The work on it took nearly a year of my spare time. My father helped me in the mechanical part, and nearly the whole instrument, including blacksmithing work and everything, were done at home. The stove being turned into a forge, and a piece of railroad rail, and a broken flat iron into anvils. After making the nine and a half inch telescope, I made a six inch glass and found it a much easier task, while the instrument was most satisfactory indeed. Subsequently, I made a number of other telescopes, including a 12 inch, a 15 inch, an 8 inch, and two 4 inch instruments, as well as grinding, polishing, and figuring a number of other mirrors of different sizes and apertures. Close quote. If you were to open Chance's book, Our Wonderful Universe of 1928, to page 117, you'd find a picture of Hassard standing with one of his telescopes in Toronto. One hopes the light pollution wasn't as bad back then. It's pleasing that Chant chose a picture of Hassard in one of his telescope project as the image of successful amateur telescope making. It's an image which was widely distributed around the world. The problem of amateur telescope makers having to reinvent the wheel was largely overcome by one of the lasting vestiges of the ATM movement namely the three volumes of amateur telescope making, which was published with many changes between 1926 and 1980. A rationalized edition is still in print, although I prefer the somewhat organic arrangement of the contents in the original editions. They are wonderful volumes to leaf through if you ever get the chance, particularly the copies with evident signs of use, annotations, chemical stains, and insertions. Within the reddish-brown cloth covers, you can find sufficient instructions to bring the novice to the completion of a six-inch reflector, as well as numerous more taxing projects, such as refractors, eyepieces, Schmidt cameras, Maxutov telescopes, Springfield mountings, spectrographs, spectroheliographs, sidereal clocks, and so forth. Related to them were the amateur scientist columns edited by Ingalls in Scientific American. Ingalls really liked the RASC, and many RASC members contributed material to the amateur telescope-making books and to the amateur scientist columns. The RASC contributions were particularly important for the columns during the Second World War. RASC contributors passed active military service overseas, faithfully provided ATM content, while Ingalls' younger contributors were otherwise occupied. In Scientific American for 1929, for example, RASC members Moore published on a mirror grinding machine, H.L. Rogers reported on his very impressive project producing a portable 12-inch reflector, A.R. Dunlop gave examples of how amateurs could use their instruments, such as in his double star challenge and for monitoring the solar white light activity through recording sunspots in drawings. And W.E. Harper, a professional, saw his list of reflectors with primary mirrors larger than 16 inches praised, which had originally been published in the Journal of the Royal Astronomical Society of Canada. One of the outstanding contributors to Ingalls' column during the war years was Cyril Waits of the RASC's Edmonton Centre, with 18 different contributions to the Scientific American telescope-making column. Mention of weights brings us to another aspect of amateur telescope making. Some of the really good amateur telescope makers provided equipment for professionals, and some of them became professional makers of astronomical equipment. 
Towards the end of his life, Cyril Waits gave the University of Alberta in 1943 its first significant astronomical telescope, a 32-centimeter primary mirror Newtonian reflector on an English mount with a 10-centimeter rich field finder. Not without a sense of humor, Waits nicknamed the primary instrument Dignity and the finder Impotence. Waits never became a professional maker of scientific instruments. One RASC member who transformed himself from amateur telescope maker to professional was John Brashear. He became the outstanding American maker of astronomical optics of his generation. His firm provided the first set of optics for the 15-inch refractor of the Dominion Observatory in Ottawa in 1905, and the original optics of the 72-inch reflector of the Dominion Astrophysical Observatory, which is celebrating its centenary this year. Many RASC centres had active telescope-making groups. That of the Toronto, Victoria and Regina centres, to name a few, were outstanding. Even if the resulting telescopes were mediocre, the amateurs who made them would have benefited from the process next time around. They could have experienced some pride in having made their instruments, and in making their instruments, they would have simultaneously created and maintained a community of amateur telescope makers. Someone who makes an instrument, or significantly adapts one, arguably has a different relationship to his or her tools of observation than does someone who purchases her or his equipment. Those differences would be intriguing to explore, although we don't have time to do so here. And then, 35 or 40 years ago, the whole thing seemed to vanish, at least in hindsight. The established telescope-making groups and the RASC centers disappeared, and people who had made their own equipment began to replace it with off-the-shelf commercial apparatus. The active local communities of amateur telescope making atrophied, and an almost rite of passage to becoming an amateur observer receded into history. Doubtless in many cases the commercial instruments were better, but not always so. But gone was a source of experience and knowledge through craft practice. There are losses and gains with every change in technology. An amateur who made a telescope in her or his youth, but who exclusively uses commercially produced equipment now, may very well have a better or more intuitive understanding of how the equipment works than an amateur who has never made a telescope. The ATM movement has never entirely died, and that is a good thing. The long-established telescope maker conventions are still thriving, such as Stella Fane in Vermont, keeping alive the heritage of Porter and his collaborators. Anyone who is interested can still buy the materials to make optical equipment. Books and articles are still produced on making telescopes. Some RESC centers still have active amateur telescope makers. The Kitchener-Waterloo and London centers come to mind, but dramatically fewer of us are involved in this activity. This change is not only discernible in the RESC. The same thing befell the British Astronomical Association. The commercial schmidt cassegrain revolution swept away the often impressive-looking homemade Newtonian installations of the BAA members a little after it had happened in North America. Seek Transit Mundi. There are currently several outstanding examples of RASC members who started out as amateur makers of astronomical equipment and then went on to commercial success. Doug George of Diffraction Limited, the producer of Maxim DL, the late Paul Boltwood, inventor of the Boltwood cloud sensor, and Peter Saravolo of Saravolo Optics. A non-commercial example is Attila Danko, the developer of the very useful and reliable Clear Sky Charts with Alan Rayhill of the Canadian Meteorological Centre. And Jim Chung has capably kept the spirit alive, 
as anyone can sample through his astro-imaging projects for amateur astronomers, a maker's guide with 2015. One thing you'll doubtless have noticed about this list is that many of the projects are software or have software components. Some of the activity of making stuff to do stuff in astronomy has shifted to writing code rather than grinding glass. And there's nothing wrong with that because technology changes constantly. How the amateur making of astronomical equipment will develop next is anyone's guess. It is unlikely to completely disappear. And the effects of a possible trade war on the practice might be interesting. Thanks to everyone who tuned in, and we hope you enjoyed this podcast. If you have any questions, please visit www.rasc.ca slash rasc-2018 podcast for contact details. Our next podcast is scheduled for a month from now and is on the Republic of Letters and the Invisible College. Our sound engineer is Chelsea Body, and our theme music is by Eric Sphilpis.